We have been teaching through the book of First Peter for some time, for some months now. It's our way at this church to preach through books, verse by verse, as well as having times that we break away and teach on certain topics. In that way, we get to cover various topics, but also make sure that we don't just teach on the things that we feel are interesting, but that we work step by step through different books of the Bible. And so we've been spending months in First Peter, and we are coming close to the end. Next week will be the last of the teachings in First Peter, and we'll move to something different once we come back to the teaching program. And so today I'll be speaking to you for a short while about the scriptures that we find in 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 8 to 11 and I'll read those to you although I'm sure they'll be coming up behind me somewhere at some stage. Um, I've been a bit uh, slow in checking with you whether I'd given it to you so forgive me if it takes them a while to put it up. It says this, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be power forever and ever. Amen. Now, as we always do at the beginning to recap, the, the overall theme of First Peter that we've defined is living well in difficult times. Peter's writing to the church, the early church, in a time of present and pending persecution, a time in which they are under pressure as a new and young to, uh, church and are being persecuted in various ways, and the persecution after this becomes even more profound. Peter himself is eventually martyred for the cause, as it were. Um, and so, as he gets to the end of this letter, he's, he's tying together some of his teachings, and really what we need to bear in mind is this, that we need to be not just aware of the things that Peter has taught us and said to us, and he was saying to the churches, you need to be alert and sober to apply these things. It's not enough just to have the head knowledge, but you need to live by this, you need to stand by this. And so, this passage again contains a mixture of instructions and commands, and then explanations as to why that needs to take place, and then encouragements about what it means to walk in that. And so it starts off, as usual for Peter, with a command. It says, be alert and sober. To be alert, if you look at the, at the Greek word, basically the word that's used here means to be wakeful, to be awake. Peter says we as Christians should be awake. We should not be unaware of the dangers around us. We don't want to belabor the dangers of, of, of living the Christian life in terms of the enemy that we have, but we are actually an occupying army in a foreign land. The Bible says we're in this world, but we're not of this world. We're living in a world that is still dominated by the enemy and by the way that the enemy makes people believe and live. And we are living in amongst us, and these people were living physically in a place where they were small, isolated churches surrounded by people who believed differently and who were angry about what they believed. And he says, in those circumstances, you need to be wide awake. You need to be a watchman. Ezekiel 33 verse 7 says, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the words I speak and give them warning from me. We are supposed to be alert to what is around us in terms of dangers and temptations, not just stumbling to the world as happy 
kindly people, hoping that nothing bad will happen, but rather being people who are walking in confidence and living in confidence, but are aware that we need to be looking around and keeping ourselves informed as to what is happening around us. There's a certain level of naivety that we need to have, that softness and childlikeness that we need to have if we want to follow the Lord, because our faith needs to be childlike, but not childish. We need to be alert, wakeful, and watchful about what's going on around us. It is said that in the the army of Napoleon, people were put to death if they were caught sleeping as watchmen because you were not just watching out for your own well-being, but you're watching out for the well-being of those that you walk with and are around. And we should be corporately looking out for each other, being wakeful, not asleep at the wheel, not just going forward and hoping for the best, but people who are saying, I stand in the confidence of God, but I'm alert for the attacks that might come against me and the fiery darts that the enemy might bring against us. Um, I just thought as an illustration, because like most South Africans, I spent some time in the military before I started my job. When I became a teacher, I was co-opted to be a cadet officer in an army cadet unit. And we used to have camps in which we took these youngsters out and taught them battlecraft and so forth. And they would would be given lots of lectures and they'd be given lots of theoretical information and they would compete against one another. And at one of the camps that I went to and was part of the instructing team, the reward for winning was that you could be a group that would lay an ambush for the other guys that night. And these young men were equipped with assault rifles, loaded with blanks, which can make a fearful amount of noise if they're fired off on automatic, and with thunder flashes, and they, the team that had won was sent off into the darkness to go and lay an ambush. Now, we had spoken to these young people about how you detect ambushes and how you need to be wary and how to respond in an ambush situation. I was given the task of leading them into the ambush. I went to go and fetch them, and they were told to follow after me, and we walked a route, and I knew where the ambush was going to take place, but they didn't. But we had taught them things that you could detect, and as I walked in front of them through the quietness of the evening, as we got close to the site, because the youngsters who were setting the ambush were not experts themselves, I began to pick up little signs that there was an ambush waiting for us. But the youngsters behind me, were blissfully having conversations with one another and talking and looking at the stars and whistling and digging in their pockets when suddenly, well, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that, but it's loud. Suddenly about 15 rifles opened up, thunder flashes began to fall us around us, and they were absolutely terrified. One young man, it took us about 15 minutes to find him afterwards. And in the process, he'd fallen into a, a pond. So it was, it was a sad situation for him. The point is, we had spent some time teaching them how to prepare themselves for that situation, how to respond. But they were not awake. They were not alert. They just bumbled their way straight into the fullness of it. They thought it was going to happen much later into the walk that we were taking. And it happened much earlier. And they weren't ready. They were intending to walk for a while. And then when they thought this was a good place for an ambush, they would become alert. And of course... The instructors who were with the guys who were laying the ambush said, that's the last thing you do. If it's a typical ambush place, that's where they're going to be alert. So you go somewhere where they're not expecting you. We as Christians must not be bumming to the world with our hands digging in our pockets, looking at the stars and wandering around and not being awake to what's around us. And Peter says, be alert. He also says, be sober. Now, being sober is the opposite of being drunk. And being drunk means that you're not in control anymore. Being drunk or being intoxicated When this was written, they didn't probably have the levels of other intoxicating products which people have available to themselves nowadays. But 
being intoxicated, being drunk, means that you have taken something on board which has impaired your judgment, which is actually controlling your behavior to some extent. No person in their right mind dances on the coffee table with a, a light lampshade on their head and thinks it looks cool. It is the result of being out of control, of no longer making good judgment. And Peter says as Christians we must not only be wakeful, but we must be sober. We must be focused on those things that are wise and of good report and not taken away and distracted by things that aren't. Michael Eaton says that while we as Christians are sometimes in states of ecstatic happiness and joy in the presence of the Lord, we must never be in a place where we don't respond to the, the guidance and the leadership and the teaching of the Holy Spirit. We need to be in charge of ourselves, in control of ourselves. We need to be alert and awake is what Peter is saying to the church. Now this instruction is then followed by guidance because it says our enemy is like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. And I want to read to you what Spurgeon says about this. He says, we note Satan's goal is seeking whom he may devour. He isn't just looking to lick or nibble on his prey. He wants to devour. He can never be content until he sees the believer utterly devoured. He would rend him in pieces, break his bones, and utterly destroy him if he could. Do not, therefore, indulge the thought that the main purpose of Satan is to make you miserable. He is pleased with that, but that is not his ultimate end. Sometimes he may even make you happy, for he hath dainty poisons sweet to the taste which he administers to God's people if he feels that our destruction can be more readily achieved by sweets than by bitters. He certainly would prefer that which would affect his end. Spurgeon says basically don't underrate what the devil's intentions are in our lives. He's not playing a game. He's not here to have a nibble at us. He would seek if he could, if he could, to devour us. Now, lions are, he's compared, it says he's like a roaring lion. And lions are formidable enemies. They're formidable predators. But they're not totally infallible. We need to bear in mind to help us to think about this comparison to how lions go about what they do. First of all, they seek out those who are separated from the support of others and who are weak and vulnerable. A lion taking on a herd of buffalo will not go for the biggest, strongest bull. They will look for the weakest, smallest calf that's off by themselves, and they will go for that one. What's the lesson we can learn? Stay in fellowship. Stay with the family of God. Stay bound into and tied into the family of God, not just for the protection that that gives you, but for the protection that you offer other people. If we are all being alert and awake, if we are all being watchmen, we will be safer. If you look at wild animals that are the natural prey of lions, they aren't casual about how they go about life. You'll find a whole herd of zebra that will be grazing, but there will be some that will be up and looking. And all it takes is something out of place, and someone will sound the warning, and they are ready to deal with the attack that's coming. We need to be alert and awake and aware of the fact that he picks us off when we buy ourselves. I've seen too many times in the years that I've been in the kingdom of God and in God's family People who through a fence or through something that begins to distract them move away from fellowship in the family of God and begin to become spiritual lone rangers. And it's a very dangerous place to be. Um, they prey on the unwary with no watchman. They give up when resisted continuously and go off to seek easier targets. 
One of the things we need to do is make ourselves not an easy target. There's a story told about two missionaries walking through the jungle in Africa or through the, the bushveld in Africa, and they walk into a clearing and a lion steps into their path on the other side. And the one fellow drops to his knees, takes off his rucksack and starts taking out his running shoes and starting to put them on. And his mate turns to him and says to him, you're not going to outrun a lion. He says, I don't have to, I just have to outrun you. Um, I'm not saying that we should feed each other to the lions. But I'm saying we should make ourselves a difficult target. If I'm feeding on God's word, if I'm staying alert, if I'm staying sober, if I'm walking in, in, in full fellowship with the Holy Spirit, I'm a more difficult target for the enemy. It's more difficult for him to come in with his lying roars and intimidate me and put me on the run. And so therefore the, the next instruction is resist him. Oppose him, be active, don't passively give way at the first roar. Now, I'm doing something a bit dangerous now because I asked Sean to get a video clip ready for me, but we haven't had a chance to run through it. I'm going to just show you a part of it. If you want to see the whole thing, it's quite a fascinating battle. It's called the Battle of the Kruger. You can find it on YouTube. Anybody seen the Battle of the Kruger on YouTube? I see one or two hands going up. It's about a herd of buffalo that are walking along next to uh, a river or a waterhole area. A couple walking out in front, a little bit at ease, and they walk straight into a pride of lions. The pride of lions then runs at them and they turn and begin to run. And typically the lions go after a, a young calf, tackle it, and in doing so, knock it into a river. Now, I'm not going to show you the whole thing because it takes quite a while, but it's fascinating because in the river, the lions follow it and then a crocodile pitches up and grabs one side and there's a tug of war between the crocodile and the lions until this poor calf is pulled out onto the bank. While this has been going on, and this is where we'll hopefully pick up if Sean's been able to identify it, the buffalo come back. They decide they're not going to run away and leave the calf. They decide they're not going to be defeated by the lions roaring at them and running at them. And they come back to see what they can do about the situation. Sean, if we could have a look at that, I hope we're at the right place. Forgive us if we are technically completely synchronized. Those lions will probably come back and attack again, but we've got a herd of buffalo that realize that they can stand together and they can make a massive difference. And that little guy kept resisting. He's been taken down by a lion. He's been pulled in different directions by a crocodile. And now he's come up to have a whole herd of, or a whole pride of lions around him. And somehow he survived because at no point did he or the rest of the herd give up. We need to resist and keep resisting. We need to submit ourselves to God, says James 4 verse 7. Remember last week's humble ourselves, submit ourselves to God, says James 4 verse 7. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. He doesn't flee from me, he flees from the God that I'm submitted to, the God that's inside me. Now after this comes an encouragement. In 1 Peter 5, 9 and 10 it says, and I'm reading this from the, the old authorized King James Version because I like the way that they put the, the, the final words out. It says, whom resist steadfast in the faith knowing that the same afflictions that accomplished are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, established, strengthen, and settle you. The first thing that this encouragement says to us, we're not alone in our sufferings. You know, when you're going through something and you, and you don't know anybody who's been through it themselves, it's quite scary. You wonder if this is something that can be overcome. But Peter says to the, the church, look around you and take courage from the fact that this is something that's not unique to you. Our sufferings are things that Christ himself has been through and that are common to the Christian faith. And therefore we should take courage that other people have stood through it and so can we. But then he says this, 
after we have suffered for a while, because of his grace, because of his wonderful compassion and grace, God will deliver us from this. He will take it upon himself to deliver it from us, and he will do the following things. He says he will make you perfect, establish, strengthen you, and settle you. The word to make us perfect in the Greek, and forgive my my, uh, accent, the Greek speakers here, but I think it's the word katarizo. Does that sound semi-familiar? which means to be perfectly restored or joined together. And when I looked in the Strong's Concordance, which gives a, a context, it talks about things being joined together perfectly once again. When God comes to us after we've been through this battle and we've been resisting, he doesn't leave us incapacitated. He doesn't send us back into the battle with one arm hanging down and, and, and a leg skew. He restores us. He makes us perfect again. And I got this picture in my mind when I was reading this. Any of you watch the repair shop? Any other sentimental people like me. I love the repair shop. And I love the fact that people sometimes bring in a product or some an artifact that has been badly damaged but wasn't working before it was damaged or wasn't in great condition before. And these restorers get hold of it. And by the time it comes back, it's even better than it was. That's how God restores us. When he comes in after we've had a battle resisting the lion, his restoration isn't just to make us sort of semi-functional so we could march in the back of the army. His, his process is to make us perfectly joined together, perfectly restored, able to go forward better than before because we now have the experience and, and, and the confidence that comes from having been through the battle. The second thing it says he does is he establishes us. And if I look, when I looked at the, at the direct meaning of those words, it means to Turn us in a direction and set us firmly. He orientates us. When he comes back, when we've been through the disorientating circumstances of being under attack and under threat from the devil, he comes, he restores us back to what he needs us to be better than before, and he places us in the right direction and firms our feet to stand there. And then it says that he will also settle us, strengthen us, make us strong again, and consolidate us and build us onto a foundation. God's grace, when we have suffered for a while, remember last time we spoke about the fact that God's timing to lift us up when we've been humbled is his timing. It's not always when we want it to happen. It's when it's the best time for the kingdom of God. But when he does it, he comes in his grace, rebuilds us, strengthens us, reorientates us, establishes us, puts a firmer foundation under us and sets us back in the battle to be alert and to be sober and to resist the devil. And because of all this, we are not left broken and battle damaged. We are restored to do better than before. We are orientated. We are planted and consolidated by God's grace and power. And therefore, the last part of the scripture, verse 11 says, To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. And I think that's just a short little benediction that comes at the end of the section, but it's incredibly important because it says we need to acknowledge where the power lies. It doesn't lie with us in our ability to resist. It doesn't lie with the enemy in his ability to, uh, to devour us or to intimidate us. It lies with our Heavenly Father. He's always had the power. Our resistance is not only in what we do, it's in who we believe and what we say. Whom I, you know, Satan has always operated in the area, can he get you to believe him rather than to believe God. So he comes into our lives, he stands in a set of circumstances, he stands in a situation, he roars out his intimidating threat to us. We have the option, do we listen to that or do we say, I have God's word through the Holy Spirit that's been implanted in my life every time I've read his word, every time I've prayed his word, and he says something different. 
And to him be all power and all glory and all honor. Not to the enemy who's trying to get my attention off. I'm not, I'm sober, I'm not drunk. I'm in a position where I can decide where I'm going to listen. I can decide what I'm going to believe. I'm alert. I know that the enemy is coming against me. I can stand on God's word. I can give honor to the power coming from him and I can resist the devil and he will flee from me. I trust that will encourage you. Next week we'll talk, look at the last little bit of 1 Peter 5 and we'll come to the end of this teaching series. But let's just pray right now. Father, we are encouraged to know that although the enemy is like a roaring lion, that there is the lion of Judah that is more powerful. That all power and all glory and all honor reside with you. Help us to be alert and to be sober and to be people that are prepared to resist so that you can come and reestablish us and place us stronger than before in your kingdom. Help us to stay bound into and part of the kingdom family, that we are not alone and weak and unwary, but rather that we are surrounded by those who care for us and stand up for us and support us. But most of all, Lord, help us to keep our eyes set on you and our ears tuned to you. In Jesus' name, amen.